The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. Uh, Pastor Jeff would love to be here with us, except he's been sporting a, a 104 temperature for the last couple of days and really, really ill. So I'm pinch hitting for him today. It's my joy to be able to share the word of God with you. Before we get started here, a couple of quick announcements. First of all, uh, man camp. Last week, Jeff told you fellas to save the date, which is April 28th through Sunday, April 30th. Uh, Online registration for man camp is live now. So fellas, you can sign up for that. That's at the Washington Family Ranch. It's quite a long drive out there, but I mean, it is absolutely insanely beautiful the teaching is excellent it's it's probably uh some of the best teaching in our country and uh the fellowship is great it's with acts 29 and so lots of um sister churches that we're partnered with we're networked with that are seeking to plant churches in the northwest and throughout the world uh we're going to be all congregating in that one place and worshiping together and being taught the early bird pricing is $135, which you may say, man, that's, that's steep. That's a lot of money. But I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. Uh, the facility itself is amazing. The teaching is, again, some of the most amazing teaching you can possibly be around or be exposed to. And in addition to that, um, just the facilities and the fellowship that you, that you have, the the way in which you're interacting with one another in that time, having a great time. Guys, there's like, there's a zip line that goes from the top of the mountain down to the pond, and in the middle of winter, that pond is like freezing cold. You're a total man if you can hack it. Um, They've got go-kart tracks and indoor climbing walls and um, a full skate park for those of you who might like to get out. Many of you may not know this, but Darren Chase who uh, is around here, he can shred on a half pipe. And he, he's, he's a, an amazing skater, and so can our executive pastor. You don't want to miss out on moments like that. They kind of define the year for you. What kind of a church are we a part of here? So um, make sure that you, you hit that. Also, the flip side of 50. You know, uh, they get together every once in a while, and usually it's like they, you know, they're in a rodeo, or they're, you know, taking a rocket ship to the moon, or, you know, something like that. This week, it's going to be hockey. Uh, so this coming Saturday, there's a Spartans hockey game, and uh, they're going to meet at 7.15 at the rink. If you have that sheet of paper that somebody handed to you when you walk in, you can get more details on that in the announcements, or you can always stop by the info table, the info desk, the connect desk, uh, on your way out today. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to kick this off by praying. Father, as we come to your word, um, I'm deeply aware of just how easy it is to read ourselves out of the text. We say things like it applies to those guys in that time or in that place. Um, 
But many times, Lord, we, we read right past the very things that you would speak to us specifically. And though it's true, it has a historical context and that must be followed by the working of your spirit. When your word is taught, people don't just hear the history or the context. They hear your voice calling them deeper, speaking to them words of comfort and encouragement, words of correction and exhortation. It's you leading your people. It's the new covenant that you promised. You in us and in the body working and leading your kingdom. So Father, as we come to you, we long to hear your voice. We have so many Bible studies, God. We don't need more information. We need direction from you. We need you to make us disciples, to show us not just the things to believe in, but how we should live with you as our king. So give us soft hearts. Give us open ears. Give us eyes to see. Give us a readiness of mind that is discontent with only hearing the truth but longs and thirsts like a deer panting for water to live the truth. And we ask this that you might be glorified in us and in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been traveling through the book of Colossians. Uh, last week, Jeff covered the verses that we're going to take a look at uh, this morning. But as I was praying and, and seeking the Lord about what to share, there's something that stood out to me from the text that I really felt like was not only important for our church, but in particular was important to me. It was something that God was speaking directly to my heart and... Um, that brought me to a place of, of needing to do some repenting before the Lord myself. And so uh, my hope, my goal is, as we talk through this, that the same spirit that was alive and working in me would, would now direct us in our hearts to him. So uh, this is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's called Asia Minor in the Bible. Uh, this is the area that Paul is talking to. The, the book of Colossians was written to the, the city of Colossae. You can see kind of right there in the middle. And then just up from Colossae is Laodicea. And then up again is Hierapolis and then Philadelphia and moving kind of around this way. Sardis, Ephesus, and just that whole region there. This is the area that Paul is writing to. Now, the thing is, is there was, if you look Right through Laodicea, there was a major trade route that ran right through there all the way to the coast. And so um, the, the cities that Paul are, is writing to, are, are, they're there by design. They're sitting close to roads, Roman roads, where people have access uh, to goods that they need. And, can also, and it also creates commerce, a place for them to be able uh, to sell what wares they may have or what crafts they might have and, and to do business. 
though Paul had not been to Colossae, and even though he now sits in prison, God was using Paul to bring the gospel to this fledgling church at Colossae. Now, in writing this letter that is to be read to the church in, at Colossae, he intends to deliver it through Epaphras. Also to other churches that are in the area as well. Uh, and we get this information from the final comments that Paul makes at the end of the book. So keep a finger right here in chapter 1. Flip over to chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 12. Now, Epaphras was probably either a, a pastor who came to pastor, or he is the one who originally brought the gospel to Colossae in the first place. And so he's one of the shepherds there who is caring for people uh, in that city and also at Laodicea. He says in verse 12, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So, from this, we learn that Paul, in writing this letter, which he writes it around 50 AD to Colossae to encourage them, just like he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, his intention then is that these letters will be instructive for the entire church bodies at those specific locations, but not just at those locations, because Paul also tells them to swap letters. And he says, hey, the, the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, have that read at the Colossian church. And likewise, the letter to the Colossians, have that read at the Laodicean church. And have them read publicly. So in that, we learn that Paul wrote knowing that he was not just speaking specifically to a local church, but to a broader audience as well. This was likely a, Paul, a part of Paul's strategy, really, to bring the gospel and to evangelize uh, the known world at that time. He was very intentional about the way that he pursued evangelism. So what he would do is plot out cities in specific locations that had influence over whole regions or areas, that had roads that departed from them that were sort of like arteries that would reach out into the rest of the Roman Empire. And he thought, okay, if I can plant churches and bring the gospel to those locations, from those locations, the gospel would begin to spread out and fill up all of the areas around them. So very, very strategic what he's doing here. So he purpose, purposefully picked cities located on trade routes with well-constructed Roman roads so that the gospel would have a chance to spread with commuter traffic to and from these business centers. He took advantage of the techno technology and the systems that were a part of the current society in his day, and he used them to maximize his impact for the gospel. And even here, even in prison, Paul is able to continue to sharpen 
the message of the gospel as though he were traveling to the cities himself. He is discipling these churches without ever having been there. He says, you know, I, I long to see you face to face. I've never even met you guys. I don't even know what's going on. But somewhere along the way, the gospel had effect. And now I want to be a part of continuing that work of the gospel. So I'm writing these letters so that all of you churches could be equipped to walk with Jesus. So what, what is it that he's trying to communicate? Paul is establishing order in the churches. And pointing the churches to Jesus in the midst of a culture that had tons of confusing ideas about almost everything that you can imagine. From human sexuality to uh, variant religious perspectives to uh, entertainment values and all kinds of things. And so it's in this setting that Paul now writes to the Colossians to equip them as a body to see Jesus as better than any other offer on the table. And to give them tools for how to follow their new king and his new kingdom. Now, after finishing this wonderful hymn in chapter 1 about the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ, Paul now begins to describe what he does and why he struggles. So let's, let's pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 1 and, and we'll read. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we, two weeks ago, we talked about this reality, that the, the message that that. Paul is bringing is, is this one of Christ or Messiah, the, the ruling king of Israel, the one that God had promised that would be a deliverer for his people and a leader for the world. That Christ, the Messiah, wasn't just going to rule a physical kingdom, but he was going to rule a people. And that Christ would live in God's people, that he would be in them, leading them, guiding them, ruling over them as a king. And so he says that this incredible mystery was that the Messiah and God's plan for the kingdom was not always only for a physical location, but it was for a redeemed people. Christ in you. And then he goes on and he says, and it's the hope of glory. Christ is in you and that is your hope or absolute assurance of coming good. Okay? The hope of the coming glory. That is everything that has been promised in God's messianic kingdom. Resurrection of the dead. Victory over sin. New heaven. New earth. Satan vanquished. Sin done away with. 
All of that is wrapped up in the package that hinges totally upon the personhood of Jesus Christ. And he says, now listen, if Christ is in you, and God made good on his promise that that the Messiah would come and that he would rule over his people by being in them, the new covenant. If you have that already, then you are assured of everything that will come after that. Everything that follows that is also coming as well. That's a wonderful message, isn't it? And he goes on to say this, verse 28, and it's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Three times he uses the word everyone, right? He's like, I I want this to go everywhere, to everyone. No, seriously, everyone. No, I mean it, everyone. I want everyone to hear this message. And I'm proclaiming something. This is the very first thing that we're going to take note of today. Paul says, Christ is our proclamation. It is him we proclaim. And he says we do that in two ways. We do that, first of all, by warning everyone. And second of all, by teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the first thing. I I, I brought this up probably more than a few times here, but it's one of my favorite analogies. A guy named N.T. Wright uses this analogy, and I think it's just such a powerful point. He says, imagine that you are in uh, the Judean countryside, and you are hanging out in your home, and all of a sudden, a band of Roman soldiers come, come walking down. There, there's hundreds of them. And they come approaching your house, and, and, and as you're sitting there, a, a herald steps forward on behalf of the soldiers, and he blows a little trumpet, he unrolls a, a scroll, and then he says, um, Evangelium, or good news, Gospel. Here's something you need to know. I've got a proclamation and it's good news. You ready? There's a new king. King or emperor so-and-so died and emperor so-and-so took his place. Now here's what that isn't. That isn't an invitation to see whether or not you like emperor so-and-so. That isn't like, well, you know, if I add emperor so-and-so to my life, then I'll have a happier life. And uh, things will be better, and I'll be blessed, and I'll prosper, and, you know, I'll get my dog back, my wife back. And, you know. No, it's, it's just a declaration. It's gospel. It's a declaration of what is. And, and, and the truth be told, whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter what you think about it. There is a new king. Maybe you like the old king better. Doesn't matter. There's a new one now. Maybe you're afraid of the new one. Doesn't matter. He rules. He's the king. It is what it is. Now, the early Christians heard that phrasing and they adopted that for themselves. And they said, we've got good news too. There's a new king. 
Like it or lump it, he's the king. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation of what is. He really was raised from the dead. He really ascended to the Father. He really sat down on the throne of everything that has been made. He really is ruling and reigning, and he really is coming back one day to redeem the earth. Now, I'm not telling you to ask him into your heart. I'm not asking you to, you know, see whether or not you like it or try it and see if your life is better. I'm just letting you know there's a new king. You're either under his authority or you're not under his authority. It's your decision. You either live under his rule or you live in rebellion. It's your choice, but the king is still the king. And your liking it or disliking it doesn't change the reality. And so Paul says here to the Colossians, he says, Christ is our proclamation. And one of the first things that we want to do is warn people. We want to tell them, hey, there's a new king. You really will stand before him. You really will give an account for your life. This is the absolute truth. It's an undeniable fact. Like it or lump it, we proclaim it. There's a new king. And so we warn everyone, much in the same way that John the Baptist, at the coming of the King of Kings, was found by the side of the road, screaming out at the top of his lungs, make the path straight, the King is coming. He didn't say, hey, when the King gets here, he's going to make your life better. He said, hey, he's coming, straighten out your life. It's real simple. Now, the second thing he says is that we also proclaim Christ, not just in warning people, but also in teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we might present them as mature in Christ. So the second aspect of this proclamation is not just a warning to those who don't want to be ruled by Jesus, but also it is teaching instruction for those who do want to be ruled by Jesus. And he says, so we, we, we proclaim this. We talk about this. We say, hey, listen, this is what it looks like to live under the king's authority, to come under his protection and covering. This is what it looks like to surrender your life and to exalt him as king. And we want to teach you what that looks like. We want to give you instruction about that. Why? We don't want you to be immature. We want you to grow up. We want you to understand how to do this on your own. I like to remind people, you know, when, when your kids are little, it's cute when they poop their pants. How you, you know, you play weird, stupid little parent games. You're changing a diaper. Oh, did you make a poopy? You, you stinky little kid. You're just, you know, you play stupid games like that. But when they're 30 and they poop their pants, it's a different experience. You're not as stoked about it, right? I mean, you don't want them. If that happens and something has gone wrong in the process of maturing, am I right? And God is saying, hey, I don't want you to be children. I want you, I want you to be mature. I want you to be growing. 
This is my heart. So he says, Christ is our proclamation. Point one. Second thing. He says, Christ is our power. Look at the next verse. He says in verse 27, or excuse me, 28, we proclaim him warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says here, it's not just that Christ is our proclamation, but he's even our power. He's even our power. And when we think of, you know, you hear that first part of the verse, and he's like, and I'm toiling, I'm struggling. We think of like maybe somebody at a gym or somebody who's working out in a field and they're, they're sweating and they're laboring, right? And, and, and that's true. There's real toil that's happening. There's real struggle that is taking place. But notice what he says about where the strength for that comes from. It's with the energy that he puts in me. It's him alive in me with the strength that he supplies. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Christ is our power. What motivated Paul? I mean, you think about that. Like, Let's just say an, the average congregant in our church says, you know what, I, I feel called to go to uh, Lithia Park and, and share the gospel with people at Lithia Park. And they go out there and they, they meet up with some people who are very opposed to Christianity. And in the process, they, they get tied to a tree, whipped and beaten, stripped of their clothes. They barely escape with their lives and they come back the next Sunday. How many of us would say, hey, you should go again. You should totally do that. It worked out really well the last time. I don't think that's the advice we would give. I think we would have a tendency to be like, I don't know what you did to make people mad. But something, you know, I don't offend people like that. But Paul, man, every city he goes to, he gets beat up. He gets whipped. He gets imprisoned. He suffers in terrible, terrible ways. Everybody hates him. I mean, he is not popular. Not popular at all. And the question comes, why do you do this? What compels you to do this? What is it that's driving you to keep taking a beating like this? Not even Rocky gets up that many times. What's your deal? And he says, I toil. I struggle with all of the energy of Christ within me. In other words, it is Jesus' love in me for the world that keeps pushing me out there. It's Christ's heart in me. He has become so much a part of the fiber of my being that when I see a lost world, I love that lost world like he does. And so I keep going. The same way my Jesus went to the cross. 
I keep going. And I keep pursuing. Because he's the energy, the power at work within me. Thirdly, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The third thing he says here is that not only is Christ our proclamation and Christ our power, but Christ is our prize. You know, I sat at Black Rock Coffee, and I've got a little app on my phone that lets me, you know, look at the original languages, and I can, you know, take a look at the original text itself and break down the Greek words and, and, and kind of dig through there. And, 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 and as I did that with this verse, this beautiful picture emerged. Essentially what he's saying is, is Christ is a treasure house, Okay? He's a treasure house. And and in him, everything that you could possibly need or want, it is found in him. It's treasure. It's treasure, guys. Treasure that the world can't take away, that, that, that thieves can't steal from you, that the stock market can't touch. It's treasure that when you lose everything, you lose family, and friends, and riches, and relationships, and whatever else you could possibly put value on. He is enough. It's the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus just being poured out on you, showing you the things that matter in life. Revealing to you what is true. He says, Christ is our prize. He's not the path to a prize. He himself is the prize. Now, I got to be honest. I mean, when, when I think about the delineation between a, a path to a prize and the prize itself, I, I see a lot of that happening within some of the circles that I run in among believers. Where Jesus is a means to what is valued? God, my marriage is falling apart and, 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 and things are awful and things are terrible and I, and I just I want it to get back together. So I'm, I'm giving my life to you so that I can get what I want, what I truly treasure. It's not that I treasure you. I want what I treasure. And you're the means by which I think I can get it. God, I'm in this financial crisis, or there's this health issue that's going on, or there's this thing that's happening in my life, and 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 I'm seeking you, I'm turning everything over to you. Why? Because I want what comes after you. I want the, the prize that I have to go through you to get. And Paul says, no, no. Christ is our prize. He himself is the treasure house. It's him. 
I mean, you think about the descriptions of heaven. Just ponder that for just a minute. I mean, it, says, it says that the gates to heaven are made out of a giant pearl. How would you like to have that? The streets are made out of gold. The foundations of the city are made of things like rubies and sapphire and diamonds and opals. How come we don't read anywhere in the Bible that people come through the gates of heaven? They walk over to the foundation. They're like, chink, chink, chink. Sticking rubies in their pockets. Why, why doesn't that happen? Why don't we ever read about that? I'll tell you why. Because when you get there, it's not the treasure that matters. The treasure that matters is a person on a throne who rules over the universe. And the things that we thought were so valuable here, the stuff that we live for here, the things that had supreme worth here, it's like concrete and asphalt. How many of you ever have walked by a concrete building? chipped a piece off and thought, oh, I'm going to save that for later. Why don't you do that? It's not worth anything. It has no value. That's the point. The things that we value here, he's like, man, Jesus is the most supremely valuable thing in all of eternity. And if you have that, rubies don't matter. You make them into concrete. Gold doesn't matter. You spit on that on your way to go and worship him. You walk on it every day and you never even think about it. Why? Because of the surpassing greatness of the treasure of who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is not the path to the prize. Jesus is the prize. Verse 4, he goes on to say this. He says, Now I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Jeff did a great job last week when he was talking about this. He says, Plausible means it sounds good. Right? Oh yeah, that, that sounds good. That makes sense. And, and, and here's what Paul is saying to the Colossian church. He's saying to them, hey, listen, there's going to be a lot of things that you go, oh, that sounds good. That makes sense. But I want you to know how to tell what is a plausible argument and what is not true, not real. Here's how you know. Is it leading you to treasure Christ? Is it leading you to proclaim him as king and come under his authority and grow and mature in your relationship with him? Is that what's happening? Is what's being proclaimed to you bringing you to the place where you say every fiber of my being, everything that is in me is committed, absolutely 100% committed to him and his kingdom? 
Does it make you treasure him above everything? He says, I'm telling you about the treasure that Christ is. I'm telling you about what we proclaim. I'm telling you about the power he supplies because I don't want you to get sucked into stuff that sounds good but doesn't take you to Jesus. And he finishes off this section, this thought, in verse 5 by saying this. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Not only is Christ our proclamation and Christ our power and Christ our prize, but Christ is our pinnacle. Here's what he's saying in this verse. He says, I, I'm not with you, I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. And, and, and there's a lot of joy that's happening in me, Colossae. It's a lot of joy. Why? Because I see your good order. And when I read that first, I was like, what does that mean? I see your good order. It's a singular word in the Greek. It's taxon. It's where we get words like taxonomy. And, you know, it, it, it means essentially a fixed succession. Okay? So here's what he's saying. I see your ordered fixed succession of life and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In other words... All the roads of your life are leading somewhere. They're, they're headed somewhere. Where are they headed? To faith in Christ. That's what I see in you. I see that every aspect, here, this, this is what it is. Christ is the pinnacle. He's the apex of life. And so all of a sudden, I'm in a position where I'm like, okay, if that's true, then all of my relationships are for you and for your glory. And and everything I own is for you and for your glory. And, and all of my time and all of my energy is for you and for your glory. And all of the gifts that I have and that I bring to the table, it's for you and for your glory. And my family and my wife and my kids, God, I, I've been given them as a gift to raise for you and for your glory. And every area of your life as you go around, you go, he is the pinnacle of it all. All of life is ordered towards him. It's pointing to him. Christ is our proclamation. He is our power. He is our prize. Christ is our pinnacle. Now all of that, all of this proclamation of what Jesus is to us is really amazing, isn't it? But you know, there's this tragic epilogue to this letter for one group of people. Paul wrote this epistle to the Colossians around 50 A.D., and in these verses that we just went through, he tells the church some very important things about Jesus that he wants them to understand. He wants them to understand it because in his own words, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In essence, he's saying that understanding these things 
will keep you from falling into errors that sound good. Now this letter was both for the Colossians and for the city that was next to them, the Laodiceans. Near to Colossae was the city of Laodicea, and it was, it was a city that landed right in the middle of that major trade route. And to this day, if you go there, you can actually see like two-inch deep ruts worn into the stone because so many wagons and so many chariots and so much commerce happened in the, the main street that ran through the city called the Cardo, which is you know, where we get like cardiac, the idea being the main artery that ran through the street, or ran through the city, excuse me. They would put businesses on either side, and there's just two-inch ruts in stone. I don't know how many wagons you've got to haul across a stone pathway to run two-inch ruts in it, but it's got to be quite a few. This city was placed on that major trade route, and these divots from these wagons and chariots uh, are, are still visible today. It was a place that was a banking district where wealth and affluence were commonplace. They were kind of the main banking center for the region. It was famous for this black wool that was sold there. It was rumored to be some of the softest and most luxurious wool in the empire. It was a place of wealth where, where entertainment reigned as well as sin. And to this day, actually, there's the remains of a giant coliseum that was there. It was built into a, a, a little bit of a valley. And that coliseum was 300 yards long, three football fields long. That's how big it was. It was a place where they had concerts, musicians played. There were plays, and entertainment, there were sporting events. There was the modern-day version of, or, or the old-time version of NASCAR, like chariot races. They would watch those and all the rednecks would come out and <laughs> drink beer in the stands. It was like an incredible thing. The only thing that the city really lacked was decent water. It had a medical facility that was world famous. Matter of fact, from that medical facility, there was a, a salve that was created for eyes that people could rub on their eyes for different infections and it would help ease the discomfort of various diseases. But what they really lacked was water. Now, the nearby city of Colossae to the south, the, the one to which this letter is written, lived near the mountains. And it was a city close to the mountains and all the runoff from the snow on the mountains would run down and it would run down into the city and the water was cold and fresh and always tasted amazing. And, and then to the north of Laodicea was the town of Hierapolis. Now, in Hierapolis there was a lot of geothermal activity. And the geothermal activity produced hot springs, and, and so it became a sort of Sun River-esque um, you know, resort community where people would go and have you know, therapeutic baths, and you know, it, it was like a day spa retreat. But stuck right in the middle of the both of them 
but strategically placed right on the road where commerce was happening is the town of Laodicea. And they didn't have any water. So what they had to do is find a way to get water to the city, to, to feed the city. So what they did is they built, as Romans often did, an aqueduct system. They would get water from the closest spring to them that could supply water for the city. And there was a lot of water that came from this spring. It was actually hundreds of gallons that, that flowed. And it flowed through a series of aqueducts and then eventually got stuffed into ceramic pipes that were sort of fit together like Legos, and water would run through the, the midst of them into this series of fountains in the middle of the city. The fountains dispersed water sideways, and so lots of people could come to these big fountains and fill up water for their daily needs. And then it was, uh, there were ditches and trenches and more pipes that would, went to the rest of the city to create infrastructure. The problem was is that the water itself was really, really hard. It had a high lime content, and it smelled funky. Now, how many of you guys have been to the Ashland fountain over there? Anybody ever play that joke on your friends where you're like, oh, look, a water fountain. You should try some. I heard it's the best water around. And then they, you know, stick their face up to it, take in that nasty, funkified water, and it's like, ugh, that is gross. That's Laodicean water. Okay? That's the idea. Nevertheless, even with water that smelled bad and was tepid in temperature, so it wasn't very refreshing, the city was rich due to its commerce and prime location on the major trade route in the area. Now, this city in particular was so affluent that 10 years after Paul wrote this letter, um, a major earthquake struck the city and destroyed Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. But when the emperor of Rome offered money to those three cities to rebuild, the Laodiceans said, eh, we don't need the king's help. We don't need your money. We got enough of our own. We'll rebuild it ourselves. So that gives you an idea of how affluent their community was. Now, some 30 to 40 years after this letter was written and passed to Laodicea, where they heard that Jesus is their treasure, where they heard that he's the one who supplies their power, where they heard the proclamation, the warning to some, and the instruction and teaching to others, where they heard that Jesus is the pinnacle of everything. Another letter was written to them, this time not by Paul the Apostle, but by Jesus Christ himself. Would you turn there real quick with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 3? where Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea. This is 30 or 40 years later. To the angel of the church at Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15 of Revelation 3. I know your works, that you are neither cold, like Colossae, nor hot, like Hierapolis, I would that you either were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say this, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered. 
and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And I counsel to you to buy from me gold that's refined by fire so that you may really, truly be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. Why is Jesus saying this to them? What motivates Jesus to rebuke them this harshly? He tells us in the next verse, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I'm standing at the door and, I, and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Listen, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some 30 or 40 years after the letter of Colossians, was written to both Colossae and to the Laodiceans. Another letter is crafted by Jesus to say, you didn't get it. You heard, but you did not hear. You understood, but you did not change. You did nothing with the truth. The problem was that they were just rich. They were wealthy. And Jesus said, hey, you know, it's really hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Why? Well, poor men, they know their dependence. Poor people go, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I, I genuinely need you to come through. Please provide. Those who are wealthy are like, doesn't matter if God gives me bread. I got enough bread of my own. The poor see the injustice of the world and they go, oh Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The wealthy who are comfortable and don't experience those hardships, they go, ah, this kingdom's all right. This kingdom's okay. Now here's the thing. The Laodiceans we're rich. And we look at them and we go, oh, yeah, those stupid Laodiceans. We immediately go, that's not me. I'm poor. I live in Medford, Oregon. Or Central Point. Or, you know, the God-forsaken land beyond the hills of White City. <laughs> that's where I live, right? I'm speaking as somebody who comes from Cave Junction, so no judgment there. You go, that's not me. I'm poor. Really? Check this out. I'm a big spender. I'm feeling, feeling generous today. I got $2. All right? Anybody who wants that could come and get it. 
Oh, no takers? Why? <laughs> Jeremy, two dollars won't, won't even buy me a latte. Why, why, would, why would I come and humiliate myself for two bucks? I'm not, I'm, it's not worth it to me. Did you know that the average daily wage around the world is two dollars? That's a day's wage. So the majority of the world. We're in like the top like 9%. I don't remember exactly, but it's in that range. $2. You know, the rest of the world will look at this congregation and go, why is nobody running to the front? Why, why, why would they leave that... That's $2. I work backbreaking labor all day long for $2. We think that we're poor. We don't recognize that we are the rich Laodiceans. We're so concerned about this life. We worry about retirement and wealth and property, and popularity, and entertainment, and the like. But can you imagine this from God's perspective? Can you imagine this? Here, check this out. This, right here, is a globe. This is the world. Now, I took the liberty earlier this morning. Let me see if I can find it. I took a very fine pencil, 0.3 lead, and I put a dot right where my house is. <laughs> there it is. Okay? There's that dot. That's my house. Well, truth be told, uh, even with a .3 lead, that dot probably covers all of Medford. <laughs> if the earth were the size of a golf ball, the sun would be over 15 feet in diameter. Okay, so that's, that's tangible for us. How many golf balls can fit in a sphere that is 15 feet in diameter? A lot of golf balls, right? Lots of them. Now, it gets even crazier than that, but if you look a little deeper into space, we can find a more massive star called Betelgeuse, which is 427 light years away. Betelgeuse is so big, in fact, that it is more than twice the size of, check this out, you ready for this? Twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. That's how big that star is. Now imagine this. <laughs> just, just, let's look at this from God's perspective. He holds the earth and the moon and the stars and everything that exists, all planets and quasars and, and, and all universes span in the palm of his hand. He breathed that stuff out. And he says, and you would trade me for that dot? Really? You, you live for your possessions. You live for your, your money and for your retirement and your security and your comfort. And you would trade me for that dot right there. He says, that it makes me sick. It makes me sick to think that you 
would trade me for a dot on a dot in the middle of everything. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. It makes me want to vomit. Don't you know? I am of supreme, surpassing value. Don't you know? I am worth far, far more than that. One of my biggest fears as a pastor is that some of us here will make that trade. That some of us here will hear about the surpassing glory of who Christ is and we'll go, yeah, that, I mean, it sounds good, but I'm, I just, all I want is my patch of dirt, my little speck on a speck in the middle of everything. I'm good with that. I, I just want comfort, security. I just want this life where I don't have to trust God for anything and fear anything. I don't have to reach out and, and do anything. I, I want to add God as an accessory to my life that enhances it and makes it better. But, but really, I'm still at the pinnacle of my life. And all the roads lead to me. Would you... Would you hear the words of Jesus? What's the point of the letter that he writes to the latest scenes? The point is this. Guys, I'm sick with this. I'm sick to think that you would trade me for this. I'm right here. I'm knocking. I'm saying, please, just let me come. I want to sup with you. I, the one who made everything, who owns everything, who's redeemed everything, who will create a new heaven and a new... I am wanting to come and meet with you. Sit down at your table, eat with you, sup with you, fellowship with you. And I'm right here and I'm knocking. Won't you let me in? Does he write this to unbelievers? No. He writes it to the church at Laodicea. Sam's going to come up and lead us in one final song. And I want to tell you something before he does, or as he does. Yesterday when I read this, I had some repenting to do. You know why? Because I love my comfort. I do. Like, I don't want to take some big risks. <laughs> I don't want to shake the boat. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't... I don't even particularly want to stand up here and give a message like this and have people like bent out of shape at me because they love their stuff. I, I don't want that. I love my comfort. But Jesus won't let me. He'll let me enjoy comfort in obedience to him. But nothing else gets to compete with him. I had to get on my face before the Lord and repent. And I want us to take the opportunity this morning to do the same. Some of you here, maybe you don't know Jesus. For the first time, you're hearing him, hearing about him and seeing him as the supreme value. You see that he loves you, he gave himself for you, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he might sit down and sup with you and, and be a part of your life and be the pinnacle of your life, the, the storehouse of all of God's treasures opened up to you. Maybe you're seeing that. 
And right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Come to me. God is saying, come to me. Listen, don't miss that opportunity. Come to him. But there's another classification of people, and that's those who are a part of the church, and that the tares and the thorns and the thistles have grown up in your life. The cares of this world and the lust of other things are choking out the life of the gospel in your life. That your love for comfort and your love for possessions and your love for everything American is keeping you from being absolutely, totally devoted to the king of all kings, the one who is of supreme value, God is calling you today to reorient your life around him and to repent. As we sing and as we have time to reflect, there are three things I'd like you to pray about. First of all, pray, Lord, please reveal to me the areas where I am lukewarm and haven't fought against it. Two, Lord, please forgive me and give me strength in these specific areas of weakness. And three, thank you, God, for sending your son to pay for my weakness and help me to do whatever it takes to fight being lukewarm. Would you close your eyes? Sam leads us in this final song. Would you get real with Jesus today? open your heart before him and if he's pointing out things if you there's something that rises to the surface listen Jeremy doesn't know about that Jesus knows about that he's convicting you of that thing as that stuff rises to the surface you go man there's something that I love that's competing with you confess it to him just give it to him God I don't want to love anything else more than you my treasures can't own me My comfort can't own me. You have access to all of me. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You're the treasure house in whom are hidden all the riches and wisdom of God. You're the pinnacle of my life, the message I proclaim, and the power at work within me to do it. And you have my all. Let's pray.